Hi, welcome to the StoryWorth podcast. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Krista Baum, co-founder of StoryWorth. On this podcast, we feature true stories written by StoryWorth writers. If you're new to StoryWorth, we help people write their life stories, the big stories and the small ones. Once a week, we send our writers a question to help inspire their writing. They reply to the email with an answer or story that comes to mind. At the end of the year, we print what they've written into a beautiful keepsake book. Every story written using StoryWorth is private, but for this podcast, the writers volunteered to share their stories publicly with you. Today's story has everything you'd find in a classic crime novel. Vehicles set ablaze, murder weapons recovered from unlikely places, and conflicting testimonies characterize our writer's pulse-pounding experience as the key witness in a small-town murder trial. Bob Sherwood, the author of today's story, is here to tell us about this unforgettable time in his life, as he recalls it. Names have been changed for reasons that will become obvious. But before we talk to Bob, we're going to hear his story read by voice actor Angelo Manage as Bob answers the question, what is the strangest thing that's ever happened to you? The year was 1977. I was standing in the Simcoe Supreme Court of Ontario pointing a 12-gauge shotgun at the members of a jury. Someone yelled at me to uh, lower the gun. I complied and later walked out of that courtroom a free man. This was the setting of one of the strangest things that's ever happened to me. But there were actually several strange things that led to that cinematic moment in the courtroom. August 30th, 1976, started out as a normal workday for me at the Canadian Tire Store in Delhi, Ontario. Then, two policemen walked in and showed me a large box, asking me if I recognized it. It wasn't just any box, but a case that once held a shotgun. It appeared to be the packaging of a brand of shotgun we sold in our store. The officers pointed out the serial number printed on the box and asked if I could help trace it. I glanced through the logbook where we kept firearm sales, and sure enough, the serial number matched the entry I'd made for a shotgun sold the previous Friday. One of the police officers showed me a photo of a man and asked if I recognized him. I realized it was the same man who bought the shotgun that Friday afternoon. Their suspicions confirmed, the officers informed me that the gun was used to uh, kill someone that Saturday evening, and the man in the photo was their prime suspect. The officers took a full statement from me and let me know that my role in the case was far from over. In a town of 5,000 people, a murder is big news. Public interest shot up a few days later when the police released the suspect's name and announced he was missing and presumed armed and dangerous. The concern ratcheted up a few more notches later that week when his truck was found ablaze and the murder weapon was recovered from the bottom of a creek. The suspect was still at large. Finally, an arrest was made and the suspect was charged with first-degree murder. I got another visit from the authorities, this time the Ontario Provincial Police. They took down another statement and revealed that I was a key witness to the trial because I sold the gun. I had seen the suspect with my own eyes, so apparently I was the irrefutable witness who could testify that the gun I sold on Friday was the same gun used in a murder the next day. And the man who bought the gun was the same person accused of that crime. Lucky for me, he was not out on bail, but locked up until his trial. I thought a lot about my brush with the suspect. 
The gun sale itself was another strange experience, and I've kept the original police statements that describe the details of that chance encounter. The report recounts how a woman entered the store and asked for a five-shot, 12-gauge shotgun. She mentioned she was getting the gun for a guy. I assumed it was for her husband, and asked why she didn't bring him into the store to look at the gun himself. She explained he was in the car and didn't want to come in. I took the gun out to the man waiting in her car because I wanted to avoid the hassle of them buying the wrong gun and needing to bring it back for an exchange. Just imagine my blissful ignorance walking out to engage a would-be criminal in a gun sale. Looking back, it it appeared she didn't want me to go outside, but I went anyway. The man got out of the car and boldly took the gun apart, releasing a wooden plug that converted the gun from a three-shot to a five-shot. The man commented, Yeah, this will allow for two more shells. The guy tried to put the gun back together, but he didn't know enough to pull on the trigger to let the barrel fall into place. So I put it back together for him. He didn't come across as nervous, but it did seem like he was in a hurry. I sold him the 12-gauge Mossberg shotgun along with two boxes of Imperial shells, a radio, and some kitchen supplies. I went up to the cash register with the woman where she wrote a check, and then I helped her take it out to the car. The check, I might add, was for $269 and subsequently returned from the bank for lack of funds. Later that same year, I received a subpoena commanding my presence in the name of Queen Elizabeth II to appear in court to testify in the trial of John Davidson, charged with first-degree murder. The trial began in January 1977. As a witness, you're not allowed in the courtroom until it's time to give your testimony. So I waited outside the courtroom for most of the day until I was called to enter. I was nervous, and it probably showed. The prosecutor asked me the particulars of how I came to sell the gun and to whom. When I told the court about taking the gun into the parking lot, I was asked if the person I showed the gun to was in the courtroom now. Feeling the eyes of the room all on me, I responded, yes. I was asked to point out the man to the jury members using my finger. So I pointed to one of the men at the defense table and said, that's him. The district attorney responded with quite a flourish. Will the court please note that he has pointed to the defendant, John Davidson? For a moment, we made eye contact. Now I was a bit more nervous. The line of questioning then swerved into a strange direction. The district attorney commented, you must be quite an expert with guns. I was not. I replied that I knew enough to sell them on occasion. He then brought out the shotgun and the box it was sold in. The puzzled look on his face, he asked, tell me, how does this long gun fit into a box this size? I explained that the gun comes apart The barrel comes off, and both pieces can then fit into the box. With a quizzical look on his face, the DA asked me to demonstrate how to disassemble the gun. Nervously, I unscrewed the bolts at the end of the shell chamber, removed the barrel, and put both pieces into the gun box and closed the lid. Quite proud of myself. So far, so good. Then he asked me how long it might take to reassemble the gun so it was ready to be shot. I replied that it would not take very long at all. Throwing me for a complete loop, the DA stated in a commanding voice, 
I would like you to assemble the gun as fast as you can. Raising his left arm and peering at his wristwatch to keep time. Starting now. So there I was, grabbing both pieces of the gun out of the box and shoving the barrel into place. But it wouldn't go in. I kept trying and messing around with the two pieces without much success. Then I remembered a line from my first statement to the police. The guy tried to put the gun back together, but he didn't know enough to pull on the trigger to let the barrel fall into place. So I did just that, and the gun barrel slid securely into place, and the weapon was assembled. I was relieved, nervous, embarrassed. I stood triumphant in the witness box with the 12-gauge shotgun fully assembled. It lay in my arms with the barrel of the gun pointing to my left-hand side, directly at the jury box. Rather than thank me for my prowess assembling the gun, the judge thundered from the bench, don't point that gun at the jury. No one likes to be yelled at, much less in a public courtroom, by a judge for mistakenly pointing a gun at a jury. But that's exactly what happened to me. The trial continued for several days after that. The woman I sold the gun to testified that she had always wanted to own a gun and she bought it for herself. This was certainly different from my testimony. The defendant also took the stand. He claimed the shooting had been an accident. The man he shot and killed was actually the estranged husband of the woman I sold the gun to. He claimed the woman was his girlfriend, and they were surprised by her husband and a known drug dealer suddenly entering the house they were in. The defendant worried the men might be armed and picked up the shotgun, not to shoot them, but to scare them off. When the woman's husband approached, the defendant stepped back and tripped over some bed sheets, and the shotgun accidentally discharged, killing the man with a close-range shotgun blast to the chest. As for why he fled the scene, burned his truck, and threw the gun in a creek, he testified it was because he was scared of the man he did not kill, who he thought was part of a drug gang. So the trial came to an end, and the verdict was, in a similar fashion, strange. The jury deliberated for only five hours before finding John Davidson not guilty. He walked out of court a free man just as I did that strange day I pointed a murder weapon at the jury in a Supreme Court of Ontario and got off with just a tongue lashing from a judge. I understand. Are you on baby watch? Uh, we are, yes, yes. We are expecting a grand date baby. She's do kind of any time right now. That's exciting news. Flash forward to now. Bob Sherwood is 66 years old and living in Jackson's Point, Ontario. I sat down with him to talk about his experience with StoryWorth and his dramatic testimony in court. So, Bob, I understand you were given StoryWorth as a gift from your daughter. Yes. Uh, it was uh, my daughter who thought it might be an interesting project, so she gave it to me for Father's Day. It led a kind of an interesting life, and uh, we used to go camping and sit around the campfire or talking with friends and neighbors about, you know, stories from when I was growing up. My wife said, my kids said, and I even thought, you know, we should, you should write a book. That would be a good, good thing to do. So she came across the StoryWorth platform, and she thought that might be an interesting way to sort of get me to, to write something. I'm so glad you did write your book and share this chapter with us. What a crazy and scary thing to find yourself mixed up in. Where did this happen? What type of place is Delhi, Ontario? 
It used to be a tobacco town. It was a, a town where everybody kind of knew everybody. And I was the new guy in town for, for quite some time until I became known at the, the restaurants or the, the police officers would drive by and check things out. And, and I knew them and uh, I knew the, some of the people in the, that ran, ran the other stores because we would do things together as a community. So it was uh, an interesting town. It seems like murder was just not the sort of thing that happened in a town like Delhi. How did this small town react to a violent crime like this happening in their community? So there was a lot of people that you knew, and oh, did you hear what happened in the town? And, and it wasn't very far away from where I lived. It was you know a couple of streets over, and and uh, boom, so somebody got somebody got killed. Well, that's you know then we got shot. There hadn't been any kind of violence. There wasn't even sort of fist fights or anything else like that. So from your story, it seems like the entire experience was cinematic for the town as a whole and for you personally. Now I hope I never have to be involved in a murder trial ever, but I'm curious, how did being in that witness box feel? It was interesting because, you know, the, the one part of it that was exactly like watching a TV was where you point out the witness and the, you know, it's like, can you point him out? You know, we use your finger and point out is that man, you know, that, that man there is the, is the person, you know, and let the record show he pointed out this, you know, this individual. Uh, that part was exactly like, like in the movies, but I was completely taken by surprise that uh, you know, I was going to be asked to put this gun together, take it, you know, put gun together and take it apart and, you know, stick it in the box and that sort of thing. So that's what, that, that was the most flustering part. That ended up with me you know, finally being relieved and cradling the gun in my hand and, and then <laughs> realizing it was pointed at the jury and getting chewed up by the judge, right? So that part was unnerving. I was probably more nervous than the, than the defendant was at that point. But <laughs> So the defendant in your story was ultimately found not guilty. That's why we changed his name for the story. But how did you and your community react to the not guilty verdict? People thought that he was guilty. There was the murder, and then there was a suspect that they had named, and then he was missing, and his truck was gone, and then they found his truck burned out, and then they searched a creek, and they found this gun in the creek. And, you know, these are all things that, you know, people generally feel that an innocent man probably doesn't do. I think people were, certainly everybody in the store and anybody that I knew were were shocked that he had, had gone free. What I learned at that pretty young age was that the court is is really a, a mechanism for people to advocate a bunch of different things, and that the jury needs to then figure it out. I've heard the you know the statement that you know there'll be many uh, a guilty person set free before an innocent one is convicted, and so it just it got me thinking generally about how justice is served. I guess would be one way to to put it. Were there any other surprises in the wake of the trial? The only thing that sort of came back after the fact that kind of was an interesting story was this gun that was, you know, used and then thrown in the creek and then found by the police and then was the, the one that I, I tried to assemble in the courtroom was not really properly paid for because the check had bounced. And so the fellow that, uh, that I worked for, he took it upon himself to see if he could get it back because he said, well, that's really the property of the store. He ended up after quite a few months was able to actually get the gun back. It was all sort of, it had been a bit dilapidated from being in the creek and it had rusted a little bit and that sort of thing, but he cleaned it up and that's a souvenir that, that he had and he got a bit of a chuckle out of it. You were a key prosecution witness in a murder trial and the defendant walked free as a bird. Were you at all worried about your safety after the trial? People had joked at, oh, he's going to come and get you. You're the guy that, you know, he, he's he was the only one that tied him to the gun. But at the end of the day, he, you know, he was found innocent. And so he went about his business and I went about mine. I had never seen him in a small town, but I'd never seen him before. And I never saw him afterwards. I don't think he was going to be able to track me down if that was his, his, his desire. 
Thanks for joining us today. If you want to get started writing your life story or want to give the gift of StoryWorth to a loved one, head over to storyworth.com slash podcast. In our next episode... You know, I had my dark days when I would fantasize a lemony snicket kind of existence for this unknown child that I had put out into the wider world. I would create positive imaginary stories. They were the engine that kept me moving. StoryWorth is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Krista Baum, and produced by Hannah Ray Leach. We get production help from Jill Granberg, and our mix engineer is Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.